So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please recognize it, whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Our Father God, as we continue in our study this morning in the life of Joseph and in the life of Jacob and Lord, all of your handiwork among this group, I pray, Father, that you would enable us to have a keen understanding by your Spirit of what's going on in the truth of your word this morning. God, I pray that you would grant us a good understanding of the historical context. But Father, my ultimate end this morning is that you, by your Spirit, would penetrate our hearts with the everlasting truths in the text of your word this morning. Father God, that we would not merely grapple with historical narrative and have a better knowledge of facts. I desire that, Father God, that we be Bible people and know what your word says. But, oh, Father, the the end that I want that means to take us to is that we would have a greater, deeper love for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is our very God. And so, yes, Father, I pray you would bless us with an understanding of Jacob and Joseph and his family, but far superior to that this morning. May we see the one true living God. Bless our time as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. So, the reason I had you read 37 is I want want us to have um, a reminder, a remembrance of that moment of loss for Jacob, of pain for Jacob. Um, Because our text today, Jacob's going to be reunited to Joseph, and in order to really have a good sense of the emotion and and the joy of 46, 37 is necessary. And so there in chapter 37, if you recall the storyline, the brothers took Joseph, they threw him in the pit, they decided not to kill him, they brought him out of the pit and they sold him into slavery. Now he's sold into slavery and there's a lot more to that story that we've been tracking. But as they come to their father, they take the tunic, the special multicolored tunic that was given to Joseph from Jacob, they tear it up, they put some goat's blood, some animal blood on it, and they bring it to him and say, can you identify this? Well, duh. Yeah, of course, this whole thing is a setup for Jacob in order to cover their sin. So they come to Jacob, they put it in front of him and say, can you discover this and tell us whose it is? Jacob immediately, it's my son's. And obviously, what I find fascinating in the passage is that they do not say, 
Obviously, he was torn by an animal. They let their father stumble into that conclusion. He makes the statement, and then they go, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> Just, yeah, Dad, that, you're walking right into the trap perfectly. And so, yes, they, they allow Jacob to come to that conclusion, and now everything is covered, never to be revealed. They got away free. But consider the pain in the moment. The brothers are sitting there knowing well and good what they've done and knowing that their brother's heart is beating somewhere, to the best of their understanding, their knowledge. But in that moment for Jacob, my boy's gone. And, my goodness, you guys, the, the, past, the text of Scripture plainly, clearly shows us a deep-seated love for Joseph over the rest of his children. Um, notice that there weren't a whole bunch of multicolored jackets in his arms coming to all of his brothers. He gave one to Joseph. Joseph was very special. Joseph was trustworthy. Remember, he had Joseph go check on them to make sure they were doing what they should be doing. And so in that severe loss, in that pain, for 22 years, roughly, Jacob has lived with that, mourning that. And the brothers have watched him do that with their um, flint-like hearts, watching their father suffer when they knew full well what they had done. Well, a lot's transpired since that day in the life of Joseph, in the life of Jacob, and in the life of Jacob's other sons, Joseph's brothers. We've seen some big changes in his brothers. We've seen some massive changes in Joseph. This uh, by no means tells us that Jacob eventually got over it and is not mourning. By all means, he still has that demeanor. He still has that pain. He still has that hurt. And so, now here we are with Joseph has finally revealed himself to his brothers as we saw and said, this is who I am. I'm your brother Joseph. They didn't believe him at first. Eventually they did believe him. And now he has sent them back with a, with a pile of provisions for their family and for them to be able to get their father and all their family and bring them back to Egypt. So um, the last thing we left off with was the brothers going to Jacob, informing him, dad, this is legit. 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will, make your, I will make you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. So this first portion, uh, verses 1 to 4, is the presence and promises of the Almighty. The presence and the promises of the Almighty. And right off the bat, the main thing that I have to draw my attention, your attention to in the text, is the fact that the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things, the omnipotent, glorious one, focuses in that moment specifically down to this one lowly old man, Jacob. And God in his 
unimaginable grace, tenderness, compassion, and love comes to give fresh assurance to Jacob. This is a a very intimate, uh, tender moment in the life of this man. This is the eighth time God has specifically come to Jacob and given him a specific revelation. And, I mean, we can, we can read passages like this, we can read our Bibles, and we can almost get overly familiar with the idea of, well, of course, he's God, that's what he does. But, beloved, just ponder for a second the, the personal nature of what's being done here. The, the absolute tenderness of God to come to this man in his moment of perhaps a little bit of doubt. He's settled that he's going to go but perhaps there's still some trepidation, and God comes to him in tender grace. And what I love about this, please note this, he comes to him and says, go, okay, so that's the one thing, I want you to go, and then the rest is God telling him what he'll do. So this is not God bolstering up Jacob, saying, Jacob, don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you've been through? You can do this, you got this, you are the tough Um, you're the man on this one. That's not how God comes to him. Beloved, anytime somebody seeks to puff you up in your capabilities, you know that they're not coming to you in truth. They're setting you up for a wicked failure. God is coming, not telling Jacob about Jacob's power. God is coming and telling Jacob about his God's power. This is about my power in your life, Jacob, not you being strong and a great leader, quote-unquote. Rather, the Lord comes and says, I am with you. Now, here's what's so cool about that. You can track that throughout your whole Bible. It's all over the place. Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Lord, I know that you know everything, but you might have missed this. I have a bad speaking problem, so I can't go. Lord's answer, I made your mouth. Remember, go. But nonetheless, God's power in his weakness. Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm a youth. How how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? The Lord says, don't tell me you're a youth. I am with you. Solomon says, Lord, I'm a youth. I don't know my right hand from my left hand. How on earth am I supposed to do this job? I am with you. And over and over and over again, the Lord does not come to a man and say, don't you realize who you are? Be all you can be. Rather... The Lord comes to them and says, I am with you. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, but let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me. We exalt in our God, not in our capabilities. And so when the Lord comes to Jacob, he comes to Jacob and says, I'm going to remind you of four beautiful facts about myself. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 2, before I go there, please notice this, you guys. I love this this fact about Jacob. His first thing that he does before making this journey is he goes in worship and offers a sacrifice before the Lord, which we saw Abraham do, we saw Isaac do, and now we see Jacob here doing this as well. This is a common practice. Does God need his sacrifice? No, not at all. The Lord's not in need of anything Jacob can offer. Rather, what Jacob is showing is that, God, what I'm sacrificing before you, I'm showing you, you are of far greater value to me than anything I own, 
than anything I possess. You are of far more value. So I, I give this sacrifice of praise, this offering before you, Lord. I'm not putting my hope in my stuff. I'm putting it in you. You are the glorious God. And in the midst of that worship, it, we're told that eventually, in the night, the Lord comes to him. Verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Notice the repetition of the name. You see that a few different times throughout the Old Testament Scripture. And this isn't because Jacob was hard of hearing. It's because there is a reality of intimacy. It's God grabbing the attention. Jacob, Jacob. Perhaps some of you, your parents did that to you. Your grandparents did that to you. There's a couple times I can hear my dad's voice. Danny, Danny, he's pulling me in. I'm talking to you. I need to talk to you. I'm telling you something. And so here, in a very intimate moment, God comes and says, Jacob, Jacob. Listen to what he says. He says, here I am, Jacob's response. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. There's a reiteration of the covenant promise that's been said many times before. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I myself will also bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes with his hand. So think of these four. I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you in presence and in power, I believe he's saying there. And I will bring you up again, likely a reference to the Exodus. And Joseph's hand will close your eyes. That's a kind of a cryptic reference to death. You will die in the presence of Joseph. In other words, you're going to make it there. But do you notice the very first thing he says, I am God. I am the God of your father. I am the one God, the only God. So let's get this straight, Jacob. There is one God, and you are listening to him right now. Okay, number one. Number two, I, the one true and living God, am going with you. With with, with my particular sweet presence and power, I am going to be going with you. Jacob, you are not fleeing my presence to go to Egypt. I'm commanding you to go, but I want you to know I am present with you. Beloved, the same same fact is there at the Great Commission. When we're told, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing, so on and so forth. And then at the end, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, beloved, it's all over in your Bible, cover to cover, where God comes to his people and says, I'm present, I'm with you, I'm in the midst of everything beside you. Whether it is our evangelistic endeavor in 2023, where we're seeking to pursue a lost world with the precious news of the gospel, God says, I am with you in that. Or all the way back here with little old Jacob going to Egypt, God says, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm going with you. He made the same statement to Abraham, made the same statement to Isaac. This is a game changer. When this man is looking at the potential difficulties of taking up all of his family, all of his stuff, and going to Egypt on the word of his brothers, or the word of his sons. Supposedly, Joseph is there alive and well, and so he's going to go. And God comes and says, 
In the midst of all of that, Jacob, I am present and going with you. And all that I am and all that I have is going to be with you. So fully packed and fully assured, Israel takes his whole family through this journey to Egypt by the grace of God. Um, Notice that last promise that his eyes will be closed by the hand of Joseph. What a sweet way of communicating he will be the one that is there at your death. This precious son that you lost for 22 years, you will reconnect with him, and he will be there in that tender moment when you leave this earth. Look at verse 5. Now we're looking at the prompt obedience, the prompt obedience of Jacob. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons, remember from last week, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their possessions, which they had accumulated in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Egypt. Israel shows no lack of obedience in this passage. He made his decision, and he is going. Please notice when the Lord comes to him in the vision, his immediate response is, here am I. Much like we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he is called to go and serve as a prophet, here am I, send me. Just as it here is here, the Lord comes to him and says, Jacob, Jacob, here am I, Lord. And that's not simply a, Lord, I know you can't see me, you don't know where I am. He knows exactly where he is. Rather, what it is, it's a presentation of himself to God. It's an offering of himself before the Lord. Here am I. Do what you want. I'm ready and available. Blank slate for you to write on. What do you want, Lord? But also as he prepares his family, he gets everything ready. He uses the wagons that were sent to him from Joseph. Everything is loaded up. Everything is going. Now, um, one of our favorite shows as a kid was the Beverly Hillbillies. I'm sure you've never seen that. Um, But Jacob's family told him to move away from there. Um, Actually, God did. So they packed up and they moved to Beverly. So they're on their way, walking in obedience to the Lord. I can't help but seeing the Beverly Hillbillies uh, rattle shack um, truck all loaded up as everything is loaded in that wagon and now they're on their way. We're going. We're going to go in obedience. God has called us. Every last one of you get in the truck. We're going. So here they are, fast obedience on the part of Jacob, which shows uh, the reason I make this point, you guys, is because, and I'm, I've reiterated this a lot, because it's impacted me quite a bit in my, just in my personal study, is the transformation in Jacob. A guy that just seems to be kind of a worm at the beginning of the storyline and ends up being a very important key figure who walks closely with God. Much like ourselves. So the wagons are loaded. Israel is brought with all of their possessions. And Israel brings the entire crew. And the good hand of God is on them. Now, I'm going to read a lot of names for a second here. So look at verse 8. Um, And before I do this, you need to know this is the exact proper pronunciation of every single name I'm about to read. And if I catch any of you pronouncing it differently, um, I'll do nothing. So look at verse 8. 
But I, it's important to me, you guys, and I, I do this on purpose, and you know that. I don't, there is no part of God's word that's a waste. There's no, there's no ink that God thought, well, just put some filler in there. This is there on purpose. It's inerrant, inspired, and God has it there for a reason. And so I will give great respect to the word of God, and I want to read this, all right? So here's a, here's a list of those that traveled with Jacob. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel. <clears throat> of Jacob and his sons who were coming to Egypt, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmite, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. You know, when Megan was about to be born, I remember we were looking through those book names, or the, the, yeah, the books of, of names. None of these were in there. <laughs> the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Iob, Shimron, Shimron might have been in there. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, and Elon, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Haggai, Shunai, and Esbon, Eri, and Erodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imnah, and Ishva, and Ishva and Ishvi, really? I can't remember Benjamin and Sam and get that straight. And Bariah, and their sister Sarah, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Betcher, and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Muppim and Huppim and Ard. I know, I know. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel and Gunai, Jezer and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who came out of his loins, excluding the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born, in, born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Okay, so basically we're giving, we are given a good, strong, clear list of the crew, all those that God has given to Jacob. Remember, we have God creating the nation of Israel as he's piecing this together, these 12 sons, and this list of sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons and daughters. <clears throat> now, 
So it's kind of like this. It's split up according to his wives, obviously. Leah, verses 8 to 15, we're told 33 persons. Zilpah, Leah's maid, given to him, six, verses 16 to 18, 16 persons. Ra- persons. Rachel, verses 19 to 22, 14 persons. And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, 23 to 25, 7 persons. And then we're told 70 persons in all making this long haul to Egypt. So according to these four women that were given to Jacob, his, if you recall the whole storyline with he wanted Rachel, he got Leah, then he got Leah's handmaiden, then he got Rachel, then he got Rachel's handmaiden. Rachel and Leah bickering over him having children by them, so they give their handmaiden, and this is the crew that you get from there. God draws straight with, broken, with crooked pencils. Uh, this is a mishmash of, a relation, of relationships and of marriages and of a family. But God is still accomplishing his good purpose in spite of the brokenness of this family. So there's a, a little bit of discrepancy here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, you guys, but there's a little discrepancy regarding the exact number of Jacob's family. Because notice earlier it said 66. There are a few different educated guesses as to why the number 70 is given at the end of this reading. Thinking through the facts regarding Joseph's children, so the two, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born in Egypt and aren't current there in Canaan, the possibility of two sons dying in Canaan, as we saw earlier, and just how the daughters were counted. If you put that together, they're doing their best at an educated guess why it says 66 and then says 70, okay? Um, Because they're saying two sons have died and two sons are gone. That's the thought process behind there. Now, surprisingly enough, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says 75. Now, here's what's fascinating. In Acts 7, Stephen says 75, most likely quoting the Septuagint. As he gives his explanation, remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is walking through and arguing uh, for giving a history lesson, if you will, the nation of Israel. He makes reference to 75 persons coming over with Jacob. And folks want to make a big deal about that and argue about it. I slept great last night. <clears throat> Does not bother me in the least because there are, ex- uh, there are numerous plausible explanations for the differences in the count. Um, numerous commentators, I think, eventually just said 70 may be a symbolic number of the totality. A large number of people came uh, in, in Israel's group. Now, if it's 66 or 70 or 75, does it alter the storyline? Not really. Um, but when you see a discrepancy in Scripture, it, it is not... You kind of have to choose in that moment how far you wish to chase after it. Because here's what the world likes to do. They like to find any kind of discrepancy and come to you and go, well, obviously the scripture is completely contradictory. Why? Because the Septuagint said 75, and here says 66, and that says 70. God, this is, you call that the inerrant inspired word? Something's messed up there. And so good Bible students do their best to find plausible, educated answers to a discrepancy they see in scripture. And I thank God for that, and I want us to be careful. Um, That's why I bring it to your attention this morning, is that it's there. And I want you to see that and think through, okay, so two died in Canaan, two were born in Egypt, puts us at 66, that makes sense, and then rounds it up to 70 at the end. No problem. 
But nonetheless, there's something there, and I always want to be as transparent as I can with the text I'm preaching. Good? Cool. All right. So there's the group, there's the family that Jacob has brought together with the wagons given from Joseph, and now they are on their way to Egypt. Look at verse 28. Now he sent Judah... You'll, you see this, guys, consistently, where he's starting to use Judah as the leader of the group. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Again, I, I've made this point over and over because historical narrative, I think, presses us to consider it and think through. Does God's promises to Jacob enable him to be foolish in his doing? No. See, here's the tough part. We go, man, look at this. He sent Judah ahead to make sure he could map it out and, and see to it. And you could go, Jacob, don't you have any faith? Didn't God promise you're going to get there? Why would you send Judah as a scout ahead of you? Well, God's protection and God's sovereignty does not cancel wisdom. They're, they're not at odds with one another. Jacob does not say, we don't need anybody to go ahead. We don't need to make any further plans. Not only that, he could have said, we don't have to take any of our possessions. Did you notice that? Last week, when Pharaoh sent these men back, he told them to tell, he told the father, the sons to tell the father, don't worry about your stuff, your possessions. You will have the very best Egypt has to offer. Did you notice that Jacob took all of his possessions with him? Why? Because he doesn't trust Pharaoh? No, there's, there's sound wisdom here. Jacob is absolutely trusting the Lord, but it doesn't mean he parks his brain in the parking lot. He's going to be wise, seek to honor the Lord, as well as trust in the Lord's sovereignty ultimately. This is why we have means and we have ends, and God uses means to accomplish his ends, his purposes. So for him to send Judah ahead and scout out the land, good idea, wise move. Are you trusting in Judah's scouting capability? No, God. Okay. All right. So Judah is sent ahead. Judah is given the lead as he goes ahead to scout out the trip. They eventually reach the land of Goshen. So look down at your Bible, verse 29, or second half of 28, Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen, and Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. It's one of those passages that my preaching won't do justice to it. To the, to the drama of that scene, to the emotion of that scene. Because for 22 years, Jacob has grieved. Jacob has been in pain. Jacob has been lied to. And all of the lies of his other children, all of the lack of comfort in his soul, and the loss of his boy has been swept up in the absolute tender, joyous moment of the embrace of Joseph. And so, again, the scripture it, it, it very often, it does not go into like extreme detail uh, in reference to the restoration. It simply tells us that they embraced and they wept a lot. 
They cried on each other's neck as they, as they were reunited. Um, it's it's a, a deeply moving moment when you think of everything that has transpired. If you simply heard 22 years past, you could read that with, uh, without being too affected. But the fact that month in, month out, you and I have been tracking what's been taking place in the lives of these people and seeing all that God was accomplishing. Think about, think about the time around the dinner table between Joseph and Jacob. And Jacob goes, so, what you been up to? Well, Dad, um, uh, let, me, let me share some stories with you. And just pouring in what happened. This is what it was like in the, in the jail. This is what it was like when God gave me the explanation, the interpretation of that dream. Potiphar's wife, Dad, she sought to destroy me, and I, I really struggled in that moment. But God was still there. But God was still there. But God was still there. I have no doubt that Jacob's faith in God was just building and building and building, as Joseph said. Oh, but he was so good. Dad, yeah, it hurt badly. There was severe pain in tears. I pled with the boys, but they still did it. But God was still good. God was still good. And you think about all the emotion that ran through Jacob's mind and heart. Is God, why would you let this happen? How could you let an animal take him? What, what's going on? One thing I'm fascinated about, and we'll catch this later when he speaks to the boys before his death, is I wonder in that moment of weeping over them, if the brothers were kind of like, we'll be over here. (laughs) Or if they were swept into the emotion of the moment too. Repentance is an emotional moment as well. See, this is what's so cool is you've got different camera angles, right? You've got a father who got his boy back. You've got a boy who God has profoundly used and now brought him back in the presence of his dad. But you've got all the brothers who were the cause of all this, right? But at the same time, you've got the brother who they harmed who told them, don't, don't do that. God did this. God's in the work. God's the one who has pieced this together. God's been doing this. But how could they not feel a sense of guilt? How could they not feel a sense of pain in their heart as they see dad sobbing, brother sobbing, and knowing, we did this. And so it was just an absolute tear fest, I would imagine, in that moment of that embrace on so many levels, and here's what's so cool about our God, our omnipresent, omnipotent God, is that he is in the mix of everything there. Every detail there, God is in the midst of those people's lives. One can only imagine the height of emotion in the moment that father and son embraced. Much like the return of the prodigal in Jesus' parable, Jacob truly received his son back from, quote-unquote, death. This has to be one of the greatest reunions recorded in sacred scripture. There was great weeping and strong embracing between father and son. Listen to what is said by his dad. Verse 30, then Israel said to Joseph, now I can die, since I have seen your face, that you're still alive. What is he saying there? Is he saying that he'll die that day? No. Is he saying that he has a disease? No. Don't read too much into the text. What he is saying is, 
he, he's reiterating, going back to what he told the boys when they first came to him and said that Joseph was killed. Do you remember what he said? I will mourn in Sheol. As I head to my death, I will mourn all the way to that day. And now it's interesting, his perspective where he comes here and his response is, now I can die. In mourning? No, no, no. In absolute exhilarating joy, because I've seen your face. I know that you're alive and well. And so is it not fascinating, you guys, that this message this morning began with Jacob's sorrow and grief, the cutting of his heart, and it ends with Jacob's joy. At some point, every last one of us, we have experienced a sense of disappointment of how on earth could things have turned out this way. At some point, you've probably experienced that, or you're going to experience that, or you've experienced that many times. How could it turn out this way? Or a statement I hear, and perhaps we've made, is, I never thought this is how it would turn out. I never once thought this is where I would be. I would imagine Jacob said that to himself over and over and over again. From our short temporal perspective, we can experience tremendous anger, grief, doubt, etc. And nobody could ever blame Jacob for his great sorrow in the times of loss. None of us would come to Jacob and say, hey, relax, it's going to be okay, trust God. No, you, that would be the most insensitive thing to do. Because yes, this is real pain, Jacob, that you're experiencing. One clear, consistent theme throughout all of Genesis is this. The fact that God is at work in the details regardless of anybody recognizing him at work in the details. He is absolutely faithful in his sovereign good plan. Now, that's a, that's a truth. I believe that with all of my heart, that that is a truth of Scripture. And I will say, in my walk as a Christian, that's more in concrete than it was before this series. Because it does something to my soul to walk through a book for four years, and Sunday in, Sunday out, come away going, man, he was in the midst of that. He was in the midst of that. He was accomplishing a good end in that. Remember, guys, we, we're all the way back in Genesis 3 where we see the fall and, and we go, what a train wreck. But God's in that. Cain and Abel, are you kidding me? God, things are out of hand. Abraham, Abraham is a worshiper, uh, a, a pagan in the era of Chaldees. God, that's not the guy. Jacob, what a dirty rat. Over and over and over again, you can walk through historical narrative and say, this is out of God's control. And what's so interesting, you guys, is that as you walk through, all it does, I say all it does, what it does is it takes time and patience to see it was actually in his control the entire time. But... But if you, if you do like a quick snapshot of one little moment in the life of one of these men, one of these patriarchs, you can go, this is out of God's control. 
when Joseph had fingerprints and bruises on his arms from his brother's hands, and you see him in that prison rotting, and the brothers pulled one over on Jacob, if you simply visit that afternoon, you would go, where's God? Nowhere to be seen. He didn't stop him. Stop him, God. Nope, didn't stop him. Just let it go. Really? Really? That's what you're going to do. And then Jacob, or Joseph rather, waits. And the one who was inflicted upon is the one that says, it was never out of hand. It was never out of control. He had a game plan throughout the entire thing. That does not erase the guilt of the brothers or their evil motive. In their heart, they were acting in evil. But even their acting in evil did not stop God's good purpose to be accomplished. He is absolutely faithful in his sovereign good plan. And so be patient and accepting of God's will for your life. His will is far better. Far better. We typically discover this by tracing back God's intricate handiwork. Jacob experienced a great amount of pain and loss and now has tasted joy that very few will ever experience in the the manner in which he did. Our God is absolutely worthy to be trusted in any and every circumstances. I, I, I know, you guys, that that is a bell I ring all the time, but it's because I, I really, with all of my heart, believe this is an antidote to some of the deepest, most severe pain that we may experience in this life is that, God, you are in the midst of this. You are accomplishing something here. Not only that, but particularly in a series where you're doing historical narrative, you can have the appearance of things out of his control. And so here's my challenge. Just keep reading the book. Just keep reading further, and you will see by tracing back, no, the Lord was in the midst of that. Last one. That moment, remember Simeon when he told Mary that a sword's going to pierce your heart? That was true. That day, when her boy, her son, her beloved son, Jesus, who she raised to watch men take him and destroy him and pierce him on a tree and see the mistreatment of her baby was a horrific, horrific moment. But what I'm told in Scripture is that that moment was precisely organized and directed by the one on the tree to accomplish his good purpose, which rescued the soul of that crying mother, as well as Dan Mason. Now, I realize, beloved, that that is heavy, weighty stuff. But life hurts really bad at times, and it takes clear, good, solid doctrine to rush to our rescue, to know who our God is and know that he's at work in the midst of that. We need our precious God and a good understanding of him when it hurts. 
And so when I see Jacob bound up in the arms of his son, and his son looks his father in the eye and says, God was at work in the midst of all of it the entire time. That's the word to my heart this morning, and that's the word I share with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, 